following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Okay, now just before we dive into that chapter, let me just uh, make a couple of comments orientating us again in this book of Judges, now that we're back into the second half of the series, get our bearings again with, uh, with this book. So Judges, <clears throat> as a book, tells the story of about a 250-year period in Israel's history, which saw a massive spiritual decline in the nation of Israel. They're in the promised land, they're in the land of Canaan, but it's not long after being there that they begin to forsake God and His ways and chase after the gods of the people around them, the gods of the Canaanites, and they start incorporating those gods into their religious practices and move away from the one true God. <clears throat> so in response to this, God hands them over to the very nations that they have begun worshipping the gods of. And these nations are allowed to come and conquer Israel and subjugate them and oppress them for a period of time. From within that oppressed position, Israel cries out to God for a deliverer and God raises somebody up. This is the judge. Um, but they're not a courtroom type judge. They're more of a military style deliverer, a leader. And they lead Israel in a huge army against the conquering, oppressing people, freeing and restoring Israel again. And then it's not long before Israel is back to their old ways. God once again judges them and hands them over to a foreign nation. And so that cycle of judgment and deliverance spirals its way through this book. And each time it gets worse. Each time Israel's rebellion is worse. Each time God's judgment is worse. And the whole thing is a downward cycle of unfaithfulness. And that's the backdrop against which we see the other major theme of Judges, which is the faithfulness of God. That in spite of repetitive wickedness, in spite of this unfaithfulness of Israel, which just seems to circle round and round and round as it does in our lives a lot of the time, God is still faithful. He will not give up on His people. He will not give up on His promise. He's still moving the story forward. And that's the great shining light in Judges. At a human level, it's a, it's a tragic story of unfaithfulness. At God's level, it's the story of Him constantly intervening and listening to His people, even though they are stubborn and obstinate. It's the faithfulness of God in spite of human unfaithfulness. So this morning then we come to, and Laura set the scene for this last week with Samson's parents, but we come to the life of Samson. And Samson is one of the more colorful and interesting characters in the book of Judges. His story stretches over about three or so chapters. Uh, if you've been brought up in Sunday school, you've probably heard about Samson pretty early on. He's one of those characters that we learn about, and he's well known because of his long hair and his physical strength. And sometimes Samson is kind of held up as a model of virtue, as a model of this is how we should live. You know, he was a great example. He had this amazing strength, but he used this strength for God. And, and at times, Samson is even compared favorably to Jesus, that he made the ultimate sacrifice in the end of his life, gave his life up in this act that defeated the enemies of God, ultimate act of surrender and sacrifice. Well, it's a nice theory, but um, doesn't really hold up. It glosses over a lot of other stuff in these chapters, which place big question marks over Samson's character. When you read the full story of Samson, you'll see this coming out today. He's a pretty violent guy. 
He's a pretty reckless guy. He's very impulsive. He's very arrogant. He's very manipulative. He's driven by his own desires, often his own sexual desire, which he can't seem to get under control. And he is a man who just lives for himself, selfishly. That is ultimately his downfall. So he's not really a model of virtue. If anything, Samson is a contrast to Jesus and highlights the unfaithfulness of Israel at the time. So let's dive into the text today in chapter 14. And you see some of this starting to come through. The first thing at the beginning of this chapter that we see Samson doing, the first recorded action he takes in his life, is that he goes down from his hometown. He goes to a village called Timnah, which is a Philistine village. The Philistines were the occupying people at the time, subjecting Israel. He goes down to this Philistine village. He sees a woman there that he thinks is attractive. He decides he wants to take her for his wife. So he comes back home and demands that his parents organize the wedding. Not much really changed there uh, in our modern setting. That's pretty much still how it works a lot of the time. But this is a bad start for Samson. In the, in the first instance, what he has done is, is taken a Philistine wife, which is expressly forbidden by God. This intermarrying of Israel with other nations is not what God has commanded. And then, having identified the woman he wants to marry, he comes back and he demands his parents organize the wedding, which completely overturned parent-child relationships. In this day, it would have, in this time, it would have been the parents' responsibility to identify the wife. It would have been the parents' responsibility then to orchestrate events. But Samson just turns around, I've found her, I want you to front up, organize the wedding, pay for the wedding. Thanks very much. And this is all the more worse because Samson is a Nazarite. Now, a Nazarite is somebody who was dedicated to God, consecrated to God, and they were intended to be a symbol of of the purity that God wanted for the whole nation of Israel by their pure life, by their ritual cleanliness, by their set-apartness for God's service. They were a model of God's faithfulness toward Israel. And Samson is already becoming a symbol for all the wrong reasons. He's becoming a symbol of Israel's unfaithfulness toward God, not a symbol of purity as he was supposed to be. But apparently Samson's parents figure that it's better to go along with this rather than lose their son altogether. So they consent to his demands and off they go to Timnah to meet the bride. On the way, Samson gets attacked by a lion and in this supernatural display of strength, he tears the lion apart and destroys this lion, which apparently his parents don't know anything about. Somehow this happened while they weren't there. Then on the second visit, down to Timnah, Samson comes across the lion carcass again, and now it's filled with bees and honey. Samson takes some of the honey, and he eats it, and he gives it to his parents. There's maybe echoes here, I wonder, of Genesis 3 in the eating of the forbidden fruit. For Samson, this was again a breaking of his Nazarite vows. To come in contact with an unclean animal like that would have meant that he needed to go through a huge process of ritual purity, a complicated and lengthy process which he can't be bothered with, so he just doesn't tell his parents about it. And on they go. Well, they come to the wedding, and uh, Samson gets appointed 30 groomsmen. It's quite a big wedding party. 30 Philistine groomsmen. And Samson just decides to provoke them by telling them this impossible riddle and putting a really big wager on it, 30 sets of clothes. A riddle that has to do with his encounter with a lion that the Philistines can't possibly have known anything about, so they're unable to give him the answer. So then this all turns pretty lethal. They get hold of his wife and say, you better cajole the answer out of him or else we are going to burn you and your father's household to death. So now the stakes are really high. 
She goes to Samson, has a meltdown, cries all through the feast, says, you don't really love me. You haven't told me the answer to the riddle. Please tell me. So eventually Samson does. He caves. He tells her the answer to the riddle. So she can go back, tell the Philistines, and they tell Samson the answer. But now Samson's mad because his wife, he feels, has betrayed him. And these Philistines have got the answer through deceptive means. So the way that he fulfills his wager of getting the 30 sets of clothes is that he goes and attacks another Philistine village, Ashkelon, kills 30 of their men, takes their clothes, bring them back, and present that to the Philistine groomsmen as the fulfillment of his wager, which infuriates them. And this leads to another spiral of violence that just carries on through the next few chapters. Meantime, Samson's so angry with his wife that he just walks out on her. I didn't even realize this part in the story, but he just walks out on his first wife. You look at the end of the chapter, he just leaves, goes back to his father's household, and her dad just gives her to the next groomsman. As, what kind of wedding is this? You know, it's okay, honey. I know he's gone, but why don't you just have John over here? Let's just carry on with the wedding and uh, pair you up with the next guy. So she gets given to one of his companions. Samson, meanwhile, takes off back to his father's house. This is a tragic story. I mean, this is just a series of terrible decisions on Samson's part. Now, the real key to understanding what is happening here in these events is one little Hebrew word. It's the word nagad, and it means to tell or to explain something. It appears 10 times in this chapter. This chapter is all about things that are told, or more importantly, things that are not told, things that are kept secret. There's information being passed back and forth, and sometimes things kept to oneself. So Samson doesn't tell. He doesn't nagad his parents about the lion. And then he doesn't tell them where the honey came from. And then he tells the Philistines a riddle, but they can't tell him the answer. And his wife wants him to tell her, and eventually he does, so she tells the Philistines, so they tell him the answer. Constantly there is this interplay of nagad. There are things being explained, and there are things that Samson often decides not to nagad. They're kept back just to him. And that takes us, I think, to the deeper level of the story's meaning. Because the genius of the way that this chapter is written is that there are things in here that are not even told to the characters in the story. Things that only we as the reader knows. Sometimes even things that Samson himself is not aware of. So for example, at the beginning of the chapter, we see that he goes down to Timnah. He goes to this Philistine town, takes a Philistine bride. Seems like a terrible call. But a verse before that, we've read that the Spirit of God has been stirring Samson. And that seems directly connected to his going to Timnah and taking a wife. So somehow there's more going on here than we realize. And then when Samson kills the lion, we're told that it was the Spirit of God that rushes on him and enables him to do this. That becomes the catalytic event for Samson's conflict with the Philistines that keeps going on and on and on. So somehow God is working here. And even when Samson commits this reckless act of going to Ashkelon and killing 30 guys and stealing their clothes, even then we're told the Spirit of God comes upon him. The most telling, excuse the pun, the most telling case of where this happens is in verse 4, where Samson demands of his parents that they organize his wedding. And look at this, it's even in brackets here. His parents did not know that this was from the Lord, who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines, for at that time they were ruling over Israel. Here is something that no one in the story knows, but the narrator is telling us. It is nagad to nobody except the reader. 
that even though Samson is making bad choices, there's another level here at which God is at work. And even though Samson's broken covenant with Israel and broken his Nazarite vows, this is still from the Lord somehow. Because God's got a bigger purpose in mind. God is not just interested in the particular events of Samson's marriage. God's got a whole other international geopolitical question going on here with Israel and the Philistines. And he is orchestrating a conflict between the Philistines and Israel that will eventually, not until the next two books of the Bible, but eventually lead to Israel being freed from Philistine captivity. God has got a huge plan in view far transcending the specific events of the specific people in this chapter. Samson's not aware of it, his parents are not aware of it, but God's ways are higher than anybody else's ways in this book. And this is the way that God works. His ways are not nagad. They're not told. And often God's ways are not nagad to us, right? I mean, we're let in on it this time, but I think it tells us something about the way God works, that so often his ways are not nagad. We don't know what he's doing. We don't see what he's doing. We look at individual circumstances and situations. God has got a transcendent, eternal, cosmic plan. Now, he's committed himself to working in human history, in and through the events that go on. But the way he works is not always the way we expect him to work. He doesn't limit himself through working only through faithful people. God doesn't limit himself through only working through good choices that people make only working through favorable circumstances, only working in situations where everyone's marching to his drum. God will use any situation, any situation. I would say God even uses human sinfulness, wickedness, rebellion, treachery, sweeps it up and somehow uses even those things to accomplish his purposes. He's not going to be limited by what you and I do. Yes, he wants us to make wise choices. Yes, he wants us to relate well to him, but he'll use whatever we do for his purposes because they're far higher than ours. You see it time and time again in Scripture. Think about Joseph's brothers. They sell him as a slave trader to Egypt, to a slave trader. He ends up as a slave in Potiphar's house, ends up in prison after that. Seems like God's abandoned him. His brothers have committed a wicked act of treachery. And yet what does Joseph say to them when they're finally reunited? You intended this for harm, but God meant it for good. God was working even through the treachery of Joseph's brothers to fulfill his own redemptive purposes. Think about Pharaoh, who resists Moses, refuses stubbornly to let God's people go. And yet, Scripture says, God raised Pharaoh up for this very purpose, that he might display his glory and power through him. Think about Judas, who betrays Jesus. The Jewish leaders who condemn Jesus to death. The Roman authorities who crucify him, all acting in wicked, treacherous ways against the innocent Son of Man. And yet, what does Peter say on the day of Pentecost? You handed this man over by God's deliberate foreknowledge and plan for the saving of many lives. So even Peter can see or is told providentially that these acts of unfaithfulness toward God, God has used. Even this unspeakable evil that's committed against Jesus, where he's nailed to a cross and crucified, an innocent man, God uses that very act of sinful wickedness to bring renewal and to bring healing and to bring salvation for every person who would unite themselves to Christ. 
God will use anything. He is endlessly resourceful. He is endlessly creative. He will use any and every event that goes on in our life. Now, does that mean that God was pleased with what Judas did? No. Judas made a terrible mistake, acted sinfully. It doesn't mean that God was pleased with Joseph's brothers or with Pharaoh. These people acted against God's will. It doesn't mean that God was pleased with what Samson did. He was not. Samson acted unfaithfully. He broke the law. He broke covenant with God. At one level, he acted against God's will. But this is where human history is two-storied. And the very actions by which people act against God's will, God uses them to fulfill his will. This is the paradox and the genius of God. As we act even against the grain of God's will, God will use even those things to move in the other direction and accomplish his purposes which are not nagad to us. So we look around at these situations that are going on in life and we <clears throat> think we know where God's working. Right? You can look at a situation, you can see some sign of blessing or God coming through in an amazing way or someone who's become a Christian. And, and of course God is working in those situations. But what about situations where people are rejecting God? What about situations where God's name is being trampled, where God's being ignored, neglected, people are making stupid decisions? Are we willing even to look in those situations and say, God's still at work? He's still, I don't know how. I don't know how it works. I don't know what he's doing. I don't know what he possibly could be doing. But even in situations where God seems absent, he is present and he is working for his plans and his purposes, which are not ours. And we're going to get one day to the new creation and look back and there's going to be some dropping jaws at the ways God has worked in situations where we thought, my goodness, that seemed to be going completely in the other direction from what God wanted. These were terrible. This person wrecked their life. And look what God was doing the whole time. See, we might not even know it in hindsight in this life. God may be doing something that's not revealed for generations God may be doing something that's never visible in this life, but he's working, he's scheming, he's drafting everything that happens up into his redemptive purposes, and he's just moving the story forward. And we're only going to see the fullness of that in the new creation. So we're going to be very slow to judge what God may or may not be doing in a given situation, right? If he can do these things through Samson's life, through recklessness, selfishness, and rebellion, who knows what he's doing? in the circumstances of our lives that seem quite adverse. When Anna was a teenager, she had a friend in youth group who at 17 got pregnant to her boyfriend. She was from a Christian home, but didn't really have a, a real faith, not an active Christian. And this guy was just some random guy, not part of the youth group, not part of the church. And they decided as a couple that they weren't going to abort the baby and then they decided that they weren't even going to adopt the baby out. They were going to keep the child and they were going to raise the baby. And a few months after they had the baby, they got married. And it turned out that he was from a Christian home. And over time, the two of them made a far more serious commitment to God and to one another. Became a strong Christian couple. Went on to have two more kids. And today they are a strong healthy, stable Christian family. Anna was just reading me something last night that she posted on Facebook, just an expression of her faith and trust in God, and they are a, a strong Christian family. 
Now, that doesn't mean that God was pleased with what she did. That wasn't the right call. That wasn't his will. But the irony is the circumstances that came out of that led to her growing spiritually in a way that might not even have happened if she hadn't done that. That's the paradox of the whole thing. That through these these adverse circumstances, God's at work and he brought new life. And he brought a beautiful family and he brought faith into these parents' lives. He was doing something that could not have been seen at the time. That's why in that particular situation, we're never going to be a church that judges if that happens to you or in your family. Never going to do that. If you get pregnant and you're not married, if parents, if this happens to one of your children, I want you, this is not a church that is going to judge you for that. We're not going to condemn you. We're going to walk alongside you because we don't know what God's doing, do we? We don't know what life he wants to bring out of that situation. It doesn't mean it's the right call, but we will walk with you and we'll support you as best we can because we just leave it up to God in terms of how he works in these things and he'll bring life and he'll bring blessing out of any situation. And whatever we do with our lives, even if we waste them, God's still going to work. There's some encouragement, I think, in this passage for parents whose kids have gone off the rails a bit. <clears throat> Maybe for kids, parents whose, whose kids are far from God. I mean, you think about Samson's parents for a minute. They've received this visitation by an angel Laura talked about last week. They've been told Samson is going to be the deliverer of Israel. It's going to be a Nazarite set apart for God. They would have had sky-high expectations for his life. And what's the first thing he does? Goes off to a foreign village, marries a foreign woman, makes demands of them, acts selfishly. They must have just been wondering what the heck is going on. Did they even hear the angel of God right? How is Samson just wasting his life here? And yet what they didn't know, what Samson himself didn't even know, is that God was stirring. God was at work. And he was using this situation. So parents, if your kids are making bad choices... If your kids are far from God with no apparent interest of coming back, if they seem to be making destructive choices, you can trust from Scripture that God is working in their lives, that the Spirit of God is stirring, that God is faithful, that He is working in them and through them. And even though He may not be pleased with decisions they're making, it doesn't stop Him working. It doesn't stop Him using their life in His own redemptive way. So keep trusting that that is happening. Don't give up. Keep exercising faith that the Spirit of God is stirring in their heart. Keep praying for them. Keep walking with them. Keep being present with them. Because you just do not know what God is up to. Sometimes you'll see it a long time down the track, as we can now with Anna's friend. Sometimes you just won't. And you'll never know until one day God calls you in glory what he was doing in the brokenness and the messed up situations that you thought he was absolutely absent Turned out that he was there all along. Maybe in your life, the person who's making these selfish choices is you. Maybe you're making a bit of a mess of your own life, and you can see yourself in Samson's shoes. As you read the story, you realize you are Samson. Samson's own physical strength was just a foil for his own internal weakness. And maybe that's you. Maybe you've made some terrible decisions. Maybe you've wasted your life up to this point. Maybe even now you see yourself just acting in ways that are just unbelievably self-centered. And you see it. You see a weakness of character in your own soul. And you can know that God is working in your life despite your own unfaithfulness. 
Despite your own selfishness, God loves you deeply, unbelievably. And He is working. And He is stirring. And His Spirit is moving. And what God wants for you more than anything is that you would come back to Him. He'll work within your life, whatever you do. You can walk 180 degrees away from Him. God's still going to get His work done with or without you. He's far bigger than your own choices. But God's greatest desire for you is that you would come back into relationship with Him, that you'd give up your selfish living, give up your own agenda, put aside your past mistakes, that you would come back and fall down and recommit yourself fully, wholeheartedly to Him and just let Him wash over you with His grace and His mercy all over again. That's what God wants for you, that He would work in your life in the context of a relationship with you, not against you. God wants you to be reunited with Him today. And if you've just been enslaved to your own selfishness, as Samson was, today can be a day for you to come honestly back into God's arms and just know again His embrace, to know again His acceptance of you, His love for you, His favor, and His forgiveness of you. It doesn't matter how far you've been from how big the chasm is. It doesn't matter how repetitive the stuff in your life has been. God has open arms to you this morning, and He welcomes you. He just welcomes you back. He doesn't want to lecture you. He doesn't want to condemn you. He just wants to wrap his arms around you, welcome you home, and refresh his grace, his spirit, his mercy in your life all over again. Sometimes we're the biggest barrier to that, aren't we? We are the barrier. God's done everything that needs to be done. His son has died and risen again for you. You just got to be able to forgive yourself. You got to be able to get out of the way of what God is wanting to do and hand your own heart over to him. Hand your own life over to him. He'll work with or without you, but he desires you to be in that intimate communion with him, to be in that space. And maybe today's a day of homecoming for you to return back into his arms. Romans 8 says that God works all things together for the good of those who love him. All things. Not a few things, not just the good things, not even just the good choices but all things. And that does not mean that he is going to work all things out the way you want, but it means that he'll work all things for our ultimate good, which is his glory. That he's working in any and every situation, and often the ways in which he's working are simply not nagad. They are the secret ways of God. They are the untold ways of God. And we've just got to be content with that. We've just got to rest in that, that God's ways are higher than our ways that his plans are higher than our plans and give up thinking that we've got God all figured out in terms of what he may or may not be doing in the situation you are facing. So let's learn to trust that he's working, not just in a few situations, but in any and every circumstance within your life and around you. He is at work by his spirit. Let's not judge what God may or may not be doing in the circumstances of our lives, but let's surrender ourselves to him that he would work through us and in us in the context of a deep and whole relationship that we have with his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we just want to acknowledge to you this morning that there's so much mystery to the way that you work. And we so desperately want to figure it out. And we want to know what you're doing and we think we can see and we think we can tell. But God, we just see a fraction of all that you're up to. And we look in Samson's life And unless we'd been directly told, God, we would have made all kinds of other assumptions about what was going on. But you've told us what you were doing 
so that we can look at our own lives and recognize that you're working whether or not we see it, whether or not we feel it. And I pray particularly this morning for people here who just don't see you right now, just can't see you, they're in a dark place, just cannot believe that you're working through this mess, through this situation. I pray, God, this morning, you just stir faith in them. And like Elijah's servant, open their eyes that they could just see, just for a moment, the reality of what you are actually doing in that situation. And even if we can't see, God, let us trust by faith. You are at work. You really are. We hold on to that and we cling to that. And we thank you that in spite of our terrible choices and petty sins and silly mistakes, you are at work redeeming and working all things together for your good. Thank you that you are not limited by us, but you are God in heaven. You do as you please. Help us to submit to it in our lives. We thank you. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.